the ultimate truth, God, nature, love, awareness, or whatever you want to call it, is directly available. It's patiently waiting to be witnessed and embodied. If you want to find it, turn inward and realize it within yourself. Know directly the immediate truth of your own experience. This is a truth you can't be told. It's a truth you can't accept on faith. And it's a truth you can't work out intellectually or conceptually. You can only know it directly, as an immediate and intimate kind of knowing, a bare knowing. That brings us to today's topic, mindfulness. If you recall, last episode, we began exploring the final arena of training in the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, training in cognition, which cultivates and balances three faculties of mind, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Last time, we covered only the first of these three, effort. Today, then, we'll move on to mindfulness. What is mindfulness? Well, let me first try to describe it more succinctly so you get an idea of what I'm pointing at. And then we can flush it out more fully. So, mindfulness is an immediate, direct, and present knowing. One that can't be carried into the future, remembered from the past, or written in a book. It can't be contained in a thought. It's a raw, or bare awareness, though not a mindless awareness that accompanies all conscious experience, where the lights are simply on. In addition to the lights being on, or the contents of consciousness being illuminated, awareness itself is illuminated. There is an immediate and direct knowing of awareness itself. Finally, Mindful awareness has no biases or prejudices. It has no preferences, no likes or dislikes. It doesn't grasp at the pleasant or push the unpleasant away. It allows all things just as they are, without reacting to them. All right, let's flush this out. So first, I said mindfulness is a kind of knowing that is immediate, direct, and present. And you'll often hear many people describe mindfulness as being present, as being in the now. There's a little bit more to this that may not be obvious, so let's look into it. Some people believe that we're always aware of the present. After all, where else could we be other than right here, right? So to some degree, yeah, these people are right. All experience, even our memories and thoughts about the future, they happen right here. This kind of presence, though, doesn't quite capture the kind of presence that accompanies mindfulness. With ordinary conscious states, there's a direct impression of experience from the present, but then our cognitive faculties quickly come in and superimpose a conceptual frame around this direct impression. It's like seeing the moon through a thick fog. So the mind receives the raw experience free from concepts only for a moment. The Buddha called this process embellishment or conceptual proliferation. 
it doesn't really allow us to see experience as it really is. When we're deluded by this ignorance, we throw our biases and prejudices onto experience. We ascribe them to the objects as if they really belong to them. So, as Bhikkhu Analio says, what we use as the basis for our values, plans, and actions is actually just a patchwork product, the embellishments fabricated by the mind, not the original thing. To correct this distortion, we need the opposite of ignorance. We need wisdom. But for wisdom to do its work, it needs direct and immediate access to experience. It needs to be able to penetrate the clouds of embellishment. This is where mindfulness comes in. Its task is to bring to light the raw data of experience, to reveal the objects of awareness as they are, before they've been stenciled and colored over by concepts. When we practice mindfulness, then, we're not so much doing something as we are undoing, erasing those conceptual lines, colors, and shades. It's like when Jesus told us to learn to see again through the eyes of a child. When we practice, we don't interfere with experience. We don't try to manipulate it or dominate it or control it. We don't oppose it on any front. We don't stand in opposition to it. We simply receive its raw data. We step into the foundational wonder of all things. By simply noting experience as it is, mindfulness undoes all the knots and ties we've created by trying to assert ourselves into experience in some way. So that's more what I mean when I say that mindfulness is an immediate, direct, and present kind of knowing. This, though, still isn't enough. To demonstrate why, I'll refer to Joseph Goldstein, who often uses the example of a black lab to demonstrate this point. So black labs, as you know, are incredibly present. They're not lost in thought. They're not planning their day or remembering some interaction from the past. No, they're right here, immersed in their sense of smell, interested in their surroundings, and happy to be with you. I don't think there's much conceptual proliferation going on, like you see in humans. But is a black lab really that mindful? Probably not. Okay, so what are they missing? Well, another aspect to mindfulness is what scientists call meta-awareness, an awareness of awareness. In all states of consciousness, even during REM, sleep, experience is happening. The lights are on, but there's not always this meta-awareness, an awareness of the process of awareness itself. So the objects of awareness are present, but the meta-awareness is not. The truth is, we're more like black labs than we'd like to admit. A lot of us, a lot of the time, really aren't aware of this knowing aspect. We too easily become identified with the objects that arise in awareness. We identify with our thoughts, feelings, moods, and emotions. We identify with our personality, orientation, gender, race, or whatever. We take these things to be who we are. And often, when we're not awake to this fact, 
that these are arising in consciousness, that they are not what consciousness is itself, then these thoughts, feelings, moods, and emotions end up dragging us around. They end up making us say and do stupid shit and bring unnecessary suffering. As your practice deepens, though, you'll increasingly become aware of the awareness side of the coin. You'll see that from the wide open and formless space of the mind, everything is arising in a pairwise progression of knowing an object. There are bodily sensations and the knowing of these bodily sensations, feelings and the knowing of feelings, sounds and the knowing of sounds, thoughts and the knowing of thoughts. You'll discover that everything is simply arising and being known all on its own and in its own place. You'll also start to see that there are conditions and causes for each of these things that arise in consciousness. As mindfulness and concentration continue to deepen, you'll start to become awake to the lawful nature of this mind-body process. You'll see that the body, mind, and the world are all seamlessly interconnected and governed by this law of love, this law of cause and effect, this law of karma. You'll begin to see the selfless nature of all things. And so your attention will start to shift from the contents of awareness to the ever-changing, seamless, and interconnected process of being. Okay, so in addition to being present, mindfulness also requires this meta-awareness, an awareness of awareness, an awareness of love. Is there anything else? Yes, and though we already touched on it a bit, Because it's such a crucial aspect of mindfulness, the real key to freedom, let me just spell it out a bit more. This aspect of mindfulness, another dimension of love, is what we can think of as the all-encompassing embrace of mindfulness, an awareness that allows space for everything to arise and disappear all on its own and in its own time. It's this dimension that holds everything, every experience, every sensation, feeling, thought, and emotion, whether pleasant or unpleasant, with complete and utter equanimity or composure, without reacting to it, without grasping at the pleasant or pushing the unpleasant away. Love has no biases, preferences, or prejudices. Now, to be clear, This is not the same thing as being indifferent to experience. Indifference is the near enemy of this quality of mindfulness. Rather than numbing out or becoming indifferent to our experience, this loving or equanimous aspect of mindfulness is receptive to experience. It asks us to really be with, to touch, whatever is arising, whether it's pain, grief, sorrow, Anger, frustration, fear, worry, anxiety, stress, desire, hatred, compassion, joy, or whatever. We connect with the emotion fully, without reacting to it. We hold it like a newborn baby, eager to love and understand it. Shining the light of mindfulness on it as long as it needs 
before it fades back into the open, empty space of awareness, all on its own. As you pay more and more attention to the mind itself through practice, I think you'll see that this is the nature of awareness itself. This is your true nature. Awareness holds every aspect of experience without preferences. It is that which simply knows. All desires or aversions, all likes and dislikes, all thoughts, beliefs, identities, all that can be known arise and fade in awareness. And whatever arises and fades away in awareness is not and cannot be what awareness is. So again, to be mindful, you must step into that formless, open space of awareness. You must occupy it and embody it. Rather than collapse into its objects, become that which is wide open, awake, and receptive to the fullness of existence. That which is already perfectly still and at peace. That which is already free. Okay, hopefully that gives you an idea of what it means to be mindful. And if you're still a bit unsure, no worries. Your understanding will unfold in time with practice. Now that we have some idea, though, let's go ahead and see how mindfulness fits into the greater context of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path. Here, we cultivate mindfulness not as an end in itself, but as a means to insight and understanding, which loops us back to the first arena of training, training in wisdom, since we can now apply these insights in the service of wisdom. We want to use our insights and understanding to discern with wisdom what keeps us on the path of peace and freedom and what leads to more suffering, dis-ease, and dissatisfaction. To do this, the Buddha created an incredibly useful framework that invites us to establish mindfulness in four areas of experience, called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which he says provide a direct path to awakening. The four foundations are the body, feelings, mind states and emotions, and dhammas, or the laws, processes, and ultimate nature of reality. Here, one contemplates the body in the body, feelings in the feelings, the mind in the mind, mental frameworks in mental frameworks. Ardent, mindful, and clearly comprehending each of them, having overcome desire and ill will. The Buddha. As you can see in this quote, to gain insight and understanding, the Buddha says we need more than mindfulness alone. Yes, we need an egoless alertness that takes a step back from the self, from our desires and aversions so it can see the true nature of experience without projecting our biases and preferences onto it. But we also need the intellect, or the ego, to be held in mindfulness, to be held in love. Remember, love or mindfulness doesn't exclude anything. 
the ego often gets a bad rap because it certainly can and does cause a lot of problems for us. In fact, all of our problems. But as the humble philosophical giant Karl Popper said, that's what life is. All life is problem solving. The Buddha called this dukkha, an essential mark of existence. It's the ego that allows us to operate in this world. It's the ego that allows us to comprehend ourselves, our actions, and our aims. It's the ego that can point our way back to love. This may seem contradictory, since I've already said love or mindfulness requires an immediate, non-conceptual kind of knowing. So let me flush this out a bit. If you grew up in a Christian frame, you can think of it as the fall of Adam and Eve, a necessary part of the human journey. Before a child is born out of the oblivion of oneness, it's unaware of itself, unaware of love, unaware of anything. And even until about the age of two, until a child first becomes self-conscious, she remains with God. It's here, then, that she meets her fall. She must fall away from God and into the world of me, myself, and I. Into the world of desire, aversion, and delusion. Only then can she make her way back to God with full awareness of God herself, and their union, or atonement, at-one-ment. Without this fall, there would be no yin and yang, no self and other, no world of things. Without the fall of Adam and Eve, there would be no relative world. There would be no comprehension, no hard conceptual stone to sharpen up the images of the world around you. We would live in a monistic oblivion. So to bring this back to the Noble Eightfold Path, to clearly comprehend means we need to comprehend the frameworks, the views and beliefs that propel us. We need to see clearly the maps that navigate us through this mysterious floating world, like the Noble Eightfold Path. We need to comprehend which lens we're using to look at everything. Are we seeing through the lens of mindfulness? Or are we seeing and relating to things through desire, hatred, or delusion? Some other subtle views or lenses we often find ourselves in are what I like to call the shopping lens, the comparing lens, the tinder lens, and the pity lens. Clear comprehension requires us to become aware of these subtle frames. This is going to take time. These are almost subconscious, under the surface in some way. I think it's relevant to note here that even in the history of Western science or epistemology, this notion of requiring a lens to view the world was very hard to understand, even among some of the greatest thinkers. Since Locke and Hume, and even Aristotle, the tabula rasa, or blank slate theory, which views our minds as passively receiving information, you know, that our senses are passively receiving data from the world, has dominated much of scientific thinking. There were some like Charles Darwin who said, 
How odd it is that anyone should not see that all observation must be for or against some view. But science didn't really understand that we have to view everything from a certain frame until the humble giant Karl Popper established an open cyclical epistemology of conjecture and refutation. To highlight this point, on the first day of class, Popper would ask his students simply to observe. And after a long, awkward silence, finally a student would muster up the courage to ask, um, Professor, what exactly is it we're supposed to observe? Aha, he would reply, exactly the point. With the Eightfold Path, and really with anything you're doing in life, we need to be damn sure we're clearly comprehending our aim, clearly comprehending our actions and their efficacy, and clearly comprehending the lens through which we're viewing the world. So again, mindfulness is not an end in itself. It's a means to wisdom. And wisdom is not possible without first being able to meet experience directly with a loving and welcoming embrace, with composure and equanimity, with an interest to see and understand it as it is. And then comprehending your motivation and intention and whether your words and actions are achieving that aim. And of course, as we learned in the last episode, we need effort to both support our mindfulness and our comprehension. Okay, well, I think that's enough for today. Let me just conclude by inviting you to take a look at your own experience. Examine the body with effort, mindfulness, and clear comprehension. How do you know you have a body? What is the body like as a matter of direct experience? Is it stable and unchanging? Who or what is it that knows the body? How is your body showing up in and navigating through the world? How is it supporting your aims? Examine with effort, mindfulness, and clear comprehension the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling tones that bring experience to life. How do you know you have feelings? Where are they? What are feelings like as a matter of direct experience? Are they stable and unchanging? Do they condition your automatic reactions to the world? When you feel something pleasant, are you pulled toward it? When you feel something unpleasant, do you retreat? When you feel something neutral, do you space out? Again, who or what is it that knows these feelings? How can your insights into the nature of feelings support your aim? Examine with effort, mindfulness, and clear comprehension the different mind states and emotions that color awareness. What attitude or posture is the mind taking? Is there wanting, desire, greed, or lust in the mind? 
Where are these things? What are they like? Is there aversion, anger, hatred, disgust, or ill will in the mind? Where are they? What are they like? Is there delusion or confusion in the mind? Again, what are they? Where are they? What are they like? Are they stable and unchanging? Who or what knows these mind states? How can your insights into the nature of these things support your aim? Examine with effort, mindfulness, and clear comprehension the mind itself. How do you know you have a mind? Where is it? What is it? What is it like? Is it formless, open, and free? Does it have the qualities of connection, warmth, love, and compassion? Does it feel spacious, awake, and alert? Is it already entirely at peace? How can your insights into the mind support your aim? In any case, thank you for listening. May you stay energized, mindful, and sharp today. Until next time.